Hey, theater people, Patrick here. Just a few items of business before we get to the show. First, at long last, Theater People is becoming a weekly podcast. That's right. Every Monday morning at 7 a.m., you can expect a new episode from us to appear in your podcast feed. Going weekly means that in addition to bringing you our usual interviews with Tony winners, Broadway legends, and today's brightest theater stars, we'll now have the opportunity to create episodes around costume designers, lighting designers, performers and creatives from the off-Broadway scene, and more. Are you as excited about this as we are? If so, consider reviewing our podcast on iTunes. It helps our ranking, it helps other theater people find us, and it really does mean the world to Mike and me to hear what you have to say about our show. Thanks, theater people, and get ready for twice as many episodes. Also, we are just about a month away from the first edition of our live summer series. You guys, Queen Leslie Margarita herself will be joining us as our guest for the show on May 8th at Pearl Studios, and there are only 15 tickets left. She and I will chat about everything from Dames at Sea to her recently published book to, you know, whatever. Nothing is off limits. Tomfoolery will ensue. She'll perform a song or two with our live accompanist, and then she'll take questions from the audience. Time permitting, she'll even stick around after to say hello. Leslie goes on at 6, but the doors open at 5 p.m. for our pre-show party, and we're hoping that you'll join producer Mike and me and some of our fabulous Broadway friends as we hang out, listen to music, and get excited for the show together. You can find links to purchase tickets at our website, www.theaterpeople.com. That's theater with an E-R-P-P-L dot com, and click on the Summer Series tab. So go get your tickets, theater people, and join us. Okay, now to the show. Yeah. I'm Lin-Manuel Miranda. I'm Celia Keenan-Bolter. This is Queen Leslie. I'm Robin DeJesus. I'm Aaron Davey. Hi, this is Ellen Marie Marsh. I'm LaShawn. I'm Telly Leung. Hi, I'm Eden Espinosa. I'm Laura Osnes. I'm Katie Finnerin. Hi, I'm Tanya Pinkins. I'm Karen Olivo, and you are listening to the Theatre People Podcast. Welcome to the Theatre People Podcast. I'm Patrick Hines, your host. I recently described today's guest, the great Danny Burstein, as a glowworm. I said this because on stage, the man truly is lit from within. He glows. If you've ever seen him in anything, you know what I'm talking about. Whether the role is large or small, passionate or passive, when he's on stage, you can't take your eyes off him. And you wouldn't want to. He's just magnetic that way. He began his career in New York in the early 90s, taking a lot of small roles and understudy gigs. Then, a few years on, he made the terrifying decision that actors sometimes do, not to take any work that didn't challenge him artistically and advance him towards a more fulfilling career. Of course, we all know what happened next. He went on to earn five Tony Award nominations for his work in such shows as The Drowsy Chaperone, South Pacific, Follies, Golden Boy, and Cabaret. This season, he's back on Broadway, wowing audiences eight times a week as Tevia in the stunning Bartlett Shearhelm revival of Fiddler on the Roof, currently playing at the Broadway Theater. I know I say this a lot, but it really was an honor to get to sit with this man for 40 minutes in his dressing room and talk about his amazing body of work. He was delightful. Here's our conversation. A Fiddler on the Roof. Sounds crazy, no? But in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? We stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! Tradition! 
Danny Burstein, thank you for being on the Theater People podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. I was going to say welcome, but we're in your we're in your house. <laughs> welcome to you guys. Thank you. Um, should we start with Fiddler? Sure. Why not? Well, I mean, I guess that makes the most sense. Exactly. So I was thinking today about how I was reading when you when you were cast in the role, how it was like, yes, perfect. This is great. This is exactly right. And how you didn't have that thought at first when, you, when, when this part was being offered to you. Is that right? Well, it actually wasn't offered to me exactly. Uh, I was doing uh, Tally's Folly off-Broadway mm-hmm. with Sarah Paulson about two and a half years ago. And uh, Bart Shear, the director of Fiddler on the Roof, came to see the show. And he said, let's grab a beer after the show. And we, um, we went to the bar next door. And he said, listen, they've asked me to direct Fiddler on the Roof in two and a half years on Broadway, and I'd <laughs> love for you to play Tevya, but they may want to go with a TV star or a movie star, but I'd love for you to do it. I said, okay, great. <laughs> so he goes, well, just put that in your hat, and, you know, if it happens, that'd be great. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I could never really, and he said, oh, by the way, don't tell anybody either, of course. <laughs> because, you know, if they wind up going with the TV star, then, you know. Um, so I had to not tell anybody. And I, had to, I waited a year and a half before I finally got an official offer. So did you audition or it just no. ultimately, it just no, came you to just you? just offered it to me, yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. You were, I read that you had first done the show when you were 16 and that you fell in yeah. love with it then. Yes, that's Can true. you talk a little bit about your history with the show? I think this is the third time you've done Fiddler. It is the third time I've done it. I did it uh, in community theater when I was a kid in Brooklyn at the, with the Diocese, Diocesan Theater Guild, which is run from the Brooklyn Diocese of Catholic Charities. And uh, they, it was nice having a nice Jewish boy in, <laughs> in the company. And then I did it again when I was uh, 21 in Summerstock with Theodore Bikel. And this time I wasn't just in the chorus. I played Mendel, the rabbi's son. And it was directed by Jay Harnick, who is Sheldon Harnick's brother. Oh, wow. And I actually got the greatest piece of direction that I've ever gotten in my life from Jay. I was playing the role for laughs. And he grabbed me one day and uh, during rehearsal and he said, Danny, come here. Dare to be disliked. Wow. Went, oh, God. It wasn't just about me going out there and everybody saying, hey, great job afterwards. It was about telling the story in the correct way. And that completely blew my mind and really set me off on the right path. I knew that it was about storytelling and it wasn't about, you know, egos. And that it, was huge for me. It's an interesting segue into a, a conversation about this production of Fiddler yeah. because the telling of it is kind of different than we've seen before on Broadway, um, both in the staging and in the choreography of it. How, you know, there's there's the um, sort of the framing device that is used and also there's the fact that the choreography is is um, not it hasn't been restricted to just the Jerome Robbins like choreography right. that we all know and love right. and I was wondering if you had opinions about that or you know what is, what is your thought on how you guys are telling this story well the only thing I knew uh, w- going in the door was that I wanted to play the role as honestly as possible I never saw Zero Mostel play the role so uh, I didn't have all that to go on. Um, I just wanted to make it my own. And I wanted, I studied uh, the culture. I read every book that I could about Fiddler. And uh, I just knew I wanted to make it as real and honest as possible. Um, At the same time, make it funny. Uh, Now, Bart's approach is always, as anybody will tell you that works with Bart, is he strips away everything and just makes it as 
basically <laughs> dark as possible. <laughs> so for the first two weeks, it was it was as you know. <laughs> as sad a show as you can uh, <laughs> imagine, um, and then I, you know, I said basically, uh, we got to make this funny, you know, somewhere we got to make it funny, and then we started to add that back in because the the funny stuff, or is the funny as uh, George Angle used to call it, um, is the most difficult stuff to uh, make happen, make real. Um, it's a ballet. And making that drama is very, very, you know, the, yeah. the sad stuff is very easy and comes easy to every actor. But the, the funny stuff is really, really hard. So that building that up um, from a real place has been the greatest challenge for me. Um, and, you know, but it's been a lot of fun, too. And, you know, with, with Bart, he wants everything as real, real, real as possible. So that's where you start from. And then you hope, hope it blossoms in some way. This might be a, a super um, juvenile question to ask, but how do you – he wants it to be real. How do you – what does that mean? Like when you're at the table the first time you're reading through it or the first week of rehearsal, what does that look like? What a juvenile question. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. Uh, um, second, uh, he brings in rabbis. He brings in scholars. And we look at the times. We see what was happening in 1905 in the Pale of Settlement in between Russia and Poland. And – you try and discover what life was like back then, what it would be like for a poor dairyman to have to travel to the next town to deliver his milk and, and do it without his horse and have five daughters yeah. instead of sons. Sons were you know, a, a great thing of pride for men back then, for parents back then, and he had none. So it was, uh, it was, it was, a, very, it was a fascinating process going through that and a lot of fun. I was thinking, I got, like, emotional <laughs> thinking about this last night, about how... And I, the, every time I see the Fiddler on the Roof, I, I, I'm reminded that Tevia has to be the world's most open-minded father. Like, he just, you know, and... and it's true. I have a daughter. I have a two-year-old daughter now. And I actually got, like, emotional thinking about the fact that this man is willing to rethink everything he knows yeah. about the world. The, like, the truths that he holds so close to his heart yeah. for his daughters. Yeah. And I, I was just kind of wondering about I don't know. I don't even know if there's a question there, but yeah. how is well, it to do that? Isn't it wonderful how progressive he is? Yes, completely progressive. He really is. Uh, and, uh, you know, he bends his own traditions. He doesn't expect to. He expects to live by the same traditions his parents taught him. And yet his kids change his mind. And it comes about because he loves them so, so very much. And that was another thing we tried to, you know, make sure was in the show. Uh, it wasn't we didn't play anything any of that for laughs either. We tried to, you know, make the relationships between the parents and the and the kids and the neighbors all real. We you know gave them all backstories and uh, yeah. I was thinking too about how this show productions of this show it, the show itself is like a vessel to sort of sometimes explore the deeper themes of like what's going on in the world of the time. Like I remember yeah. the last production was happening when a lot of the gay marriage stuff was happening and I felt oh. I felt that the show so applied so much to that at that time and mm -hmm. certainly in our world now and in sort of the way that this show has been directed it deals at least it feels very contemporary in dealing with like what's happening in the world with the displacement of, of different people from different Refugees, places for different right. reasons right. Um, how is it to 
again, I don't even know what the question is. It's well, it's interesting. Uh, we talked a lot about that uh, during our rehearsal, and that's the reason why Bart put in his framing device. He didn't want it to just be your grandfather's fiddler on the roof. He wanted to, it to be relevant for today. And that's very brave of him because people go in there and expect a certain thing. And he automatically, right from the very beginning, throws, throws them a curve. And I, I like that. It gets them thinking. And some people, you know, uh, form strong opinions about it. And some people like it and some people don't. What I've discovered is that most people who've seen the show many, many times uh, are not crazy about it. But the ones who've never seen it before are really, really into it and really, really get the significance of it. Uh, and th the great thing of that Bart has done is he started the conversation. He has people talking about it when they're walking out the door. And that's what you want in theater. You can't please everybody, you know, that walks in the door, but you want to change their lives in a positive way. You want them thinking about important things when they walk out the door. And in this case, you know, laughing and crying and entertained <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> All day long I'd biddy biddy bum If I were a wealthy man Wouldn't have to work hard If I were a biddy biddy rich Yiddle diddle deedle diddle man I'd build a big tall house With rooms by the dozen Right in the middle of the town a fine tin roof and real wooden floors below There would be one long staircase just going up And one even longer coming down And one more leading nowhere just for show Last question about Fiddler on the Roof, but I was thinking about how, you know, you're this great, like, five-time Tony-nominated star, but that this... I about that <laughs> well, that that's kind of my question. I, I um I was talking to Sierra Bogus. We had her recently on the show, yeah, and she was said lovely. so nice. Oh, and she got something from Tyne Daly that I thought was really interesting. Was that there's a difference between crabs? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That was a joke. <laughs> yeah, I mean that too. Um, <laughs> but she was Tyne Daly said to her that there's a difference between being a star and being a leading lady, yeah. and how this is maybe maybe not, but you know. Maybe maybe you experienced this in Golden Boy too, but mm -hmm. your first experience being the leader of a company of a mm -hmm. huge musical like this, yeah. how is that for you? Um, well, I had great teachers: uh, Bernadette Peters, Alan Cumming, John Lithgow, yeah. Sigourney Weaver, on and on and on, and they led by example by making it about the work, not about being any kind of a star. Uh, Tyne Daly included, who I love and have worked with. Um, and it wasn't about being a star, as I said. It was about the work. It was about l going to work and making the show better every single day, uh, finding new things, adjusting to the audience that was Raven, there that you have night. A food delivery at the stage door, hey, Raven. Somebody has a food <laughs> delivery at the stage door. You're in my dressing room, so yeah, that's what exactly. you get. Um, but uh, so I've never thought of myself as a, a star that really doesn't mean anything to me particularly. Um, I play opposite Jessica Hecht in the show. So, so great. And the two of us have always, for the most part, been second bananas. And we're very, very happy uh, continuing to lead the company in the way that we've always uh, been in companies, as good company members, uh, treating everybody with respect. Everybody. 
from anybody who walks in the door, whether they're a PA, whether they're in doing wardrobe, whether they're you know backstage, hanging lights or running the follow spots. Everybody is your equal, is your peer, and if you have that, then you really don't run into any problems because people take their lead from whoever is in charge at that particular time. And I just, uh, Jessica and I just happen to be in that position this time. And we're just being ourselves. Yeah. Um, I lied. I have one more question about Fiddler. I was thinking... Liar! <laughs> I, um, I was wondering how it is to step into the shoes of singing the, the great songs of Fiddler, like Tradition and If I Were a Rich Man. Like, how, how were you intimidated by that at all? Or, or, you know, was it something that, was it a challenge that you just were looking forward to? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, I, yeah, I was looking forward to it. I was very, it's very, very exciting. The music, the score is gorgeous. Yeah. As all their scores are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Sheldon and Jerry wrote great, great scores. They're two geniuses, and we're so lucky that we have Sheldon around to pick his brain anytime we have a question about anything. What did you do in the original here? What, did, what does this lyric mean? Um, that has been a great, great boon to this company. And treating him with respect and, you know, letting everybody know that this is a man who is worthy of respect is, uh, is something that uh, both Jessica and I have done, as, of course, as well. Um, and as far as the score goes, it's, it's a blast. Yeah. You know, there's nothing bad about it. And I just approach it every night. Look, I'm on stage exactly where I'm standing, center stage. Ethel Merman sang Rose's oh. Turn in Gypsy. Do you think night. about things like that? Of course. Yeah. It crosses my mind. Was you this know. maybe her dressing room? Uh, it's the star <laughs> dressing room, I would imagine, yeah? It could be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea, but, uh, you know, I know from <laughs> underneath our dressing table, some people have signed. Who else is under there? Uh, Sutton Foster is under there. Oh, my uh, God. Know, I actually texted, I took a picture of it and texted her when I, when I saw that her name was there. <laughs> there are a lot of uh, other people like that, you know, so... Um, it's fun. Do you mind if we go back a little bit and talk about some earlier stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I have my eye on the clock, so I know we're counting down. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of ground, amazing ground to cover. But one of the things I read today, yep. um, a, maybe it was a significant for you, maybe it wasn't. But when you were in college, you had this great experience of being cast in um, uh, Merrily We Roll Along. Mm -hmm. And you were cast as Franklin Shepard, right? That's right. And you had a question about the motivation. So you <sighs> went to the source. I had many questions. And uh, for, I was ran into a friend and I was lamenting the fact that I had this uh, this it was a very very difficult role Franklin Shepard yeah. is a damn hard role right and he said well you should ask Stephen Sondheim I said yeah of course I should <laughs> but he said no 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 I, I have his address I'll get it for you you should write him a letter and see if he answers you back so I wrote him this long long letter and about a week and a half later that quick I got a letter back from him saying um uh, dear Danny, uh, all those questions would have to be answered in a letter the size of War and Peace. Uh, so look, here's my number. Give me a call. Let's get together and we'll sit down and talk about this uh, so I can help you out uh, playing the role. So about three weeks later, I found myself in his home in Turtle Bay. We had a huge carafe of white wine and, and I sat there for three hours uh, picking his brain, not just about uh, Merrily, but about his whole career. And I, as I was coming in, J uh, James Lapine was walking out because they were working on oh Sunday in the park. God. And, you know, and now they're 
colleagues. Yeah. You know, it's a weird, weird thing. Yeah. It's the greatest thing about the business. You know, you grow up looking at, as when I did, cast albums, reading the back of cast albums and going, oh my God, memorizing every name. And then you get to work with your heroes. And rarely, rarely do they disappoint. I mean, there's an asshole every once in a while. <laughs> we you want know, a name, Danny Bursia. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, ah, I'm not doing that. But, <laughs> no. Um, but, you know, it's a great, great thing. And they're, they're usually fantastic. Yeah. And you learn so much from them. Yeah. And it's all I ever wanted, just to work uh, with great people and be a fly on the wall and learn, 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 listen, listen, listen as much as I could. To that end, I, my husband pointed out when we were looking at your IBDB page that, okay. you know, several of your early credits are as understudies. Several of your early Broadway credits are as understudies. And we were wondering, I personally am obsessed with understudies. I think it's the hardest job. I think it's one of the coolest jobs. Um, But we were curious about how, if that was something you were excited about doing, if it was some, if you thought you might get pigeonholed as somebody who's a really reliable understudy. Very funny you say. I mean, I started out doing small roles and then understudying other roles in shows that I was in. Except for a show called A Class Act that I did off-Broadway, and then we moved to The Ambassador. And I continued on covering Lonnie Price, playing the lead. Wow. And after that show closed, I got offers for two other Broadway shows almost immediately. And as a cover, just as an understudy, just waiting off stage, and just in case the guy got sick, to jump in. And I thought, well, here it is. Here's that decision time. Wow. And I decided not to take those jobs, even though, you know, I had a young son and I really needed the money. <laughs> but uh, I decided not to do that because that's not what I wanted to do. That didn't make me happy. I wanted to do good shows. I wanted to do good work. And I thought I was capable of more. How long did it take for that good work to start coming your way? Well, I just, I've been very lucky. I, I, I've, I'm always uh, doing something. Yeah. I, I spread myself <laughs> or many thin. things at one time. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I, I spread myself thin. I, you know, if it was uh, doing voiceovers, uh, little independent films, commercials, anything that I could uh, get my hands on early on. So it wasn't just one particular aspect of the business that I could make money from. Mm-hmm. So I would have a little bit of uh, residuals coming in here, and, and somehow I pieced it together and, and made a life. And then, I don't know, I guess after, I guess it took Drowsy Chaperone, yeah. in a way, to put me on the map uh, uh, because that got me my first Tony nomination, mm-hmm. and then people started noticing me in a different way. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite favorite shows of all time was the first thing I ever got to see you in <clears throat> was Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. Oh, yeah. I'm obsessed with that show. I've yeah. seen it twice. I Madrid is my mama. Give me the nipple every day. I'm gonna taste it. The tears and the drama. Tons of mama milk and not a drop is wasted. Give me direction straight into the hurricane. Shake me up and take me to the heart of all the joy and all the pain. Put me to bed, I'm tattered up and torn. But every morning I come out and I'm reborn, reborn, reborn. Mama, mama, Madrid, I'm your baby. Bounce me in my buggy on the Just 
New Madrid. I love you, my Can you talk a little bit about the experience of working on that show? Uh, that is one of those experiences where, um, and I think everybody involved would say the same thing. Uh, it was wonderful that uh, Lincoln Center got to produce that show, and and the show got up in a Broadway house, but it needed more time. It, it needed to go out of town, as most musicals do, as I would say 99% <laughs> of musicals need to have a trial run to see what you have. Um, and we never got that chance. And then when we got to the Belasco, they, uh, the... Uh, the set designer, Michael Jurgen, had all these new things. We had all these, we had three or four treadmills uh, run by this system that had never been tried on Broadway before, this new project- projection system that had never been tried on Broadway before, these different things. <laughs> I was on and on. And it was really, really ambitious. And a lot of it didn't work when we got there. Like, literally didn't work? Literally like, didn't, didn't work. didn't turn on. Right. The things would just stop. I was stop. like, oh, Danny, it worked. I loved no, every minute of it. But you but, mean it, like, literally yeah, didn't work. And so time spent on fixing that, uh, all those things, took away from time working on the show itself and telling the story properly. And so we were always behind the eight ball. And so we never really got the show up that we wanted mm-hmm. until maybe, like, I'm not kidding, like the last few shows. You know, really? Yeah. Did you guys keep working on it after previews? Like, did the show oh, ever yeah. get set? Not really, no. Wow. No, we we constantly, constantly kept changing it and working on it. And um, Jeffrey and David are genius writers. Yes. And, oh my god, um, yes. And it was a you know it was a pleasure and honor to work with both of them. Um, but yeah, I think anybody in that in that show would tell you it just. So close. <laughs> so damn close. How is it? So I think about the opening with Madrid was my ma- is my mama, you know? Yeah. And I know that a lot of the songs got shuffled around a lot. Yeah. Did you, did at one point did they say like, Danny, you're opening the show tonight. Here's, you're, get out there and sing your song. Yes, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> really? Yeah, right before we opened, probably a week before we opened. And you're able to that. make your brain make that work? Well, you know, you get into a mode where you just, okay, you know, whatever you're going to throw at me tonight, I can do it. Yeah. And and it's it's crazy because a month before, you couldn't do it. But, you know, after you've done it uh, so many times, uh, you sort of get used to it. And then you just think, all right, this is it. This is what we're doing tonight. And here we go, <laughs> flying by the seat of our pants. Uh, I did a play a few years ago um, called The Snow Geese with uh-huh. Mary Louise Parker. And... Um, they made so many changes in that play that uh, I, I, and I'd never done this before, I actually had my lines in my pocket. And I would go, new, you know, we'd get new lines, you know, three new pages a day. Did you ever so, refer to them? Uh, not on stage, but Vicky, actually, I'm telling a story. I don't know, <laughs> somebody in the show, <laughs> first name Vicky, uh, actually, one night, well, she, I think she probably tells the story, Vicky Clark, um, she put, uh, she was uh, sitting at a table chopping an apple, and she actually took her <laughs> no her lines out of her a- a- apron, put it on the table in front of her, and looked at it and said the line. You know, it's it, it, but it is what it is. You know, that is amazing. It's really hard. No, but I I used to you know would stare at the lines before I would walk out on stage and go you know and then put it in my pocket and then pray when I walked out there that the right words would fall out of my face. You know? I don't know how you guys do it. Well, the next show, I know we only have a few more minutes. The next show, 
was a total that I wanted to talk about was the total opposite of that. Something that seemed to work right from the beginning was Follies. Oh yeah. I've got those. God, why don't you love me? Oh, you do. I'll see you later. Blues. That long as you ignore me, you're the only thing that matters. Feeling that if I'm good enough for you, you're not good enough. And thank you for the present, but what's wrong with it? Stuff. Those don't come any closer, cause you know how much I love you. Feelings. Those tell me that you love me. Oh, you did. I gotta run now. Blues. So that began at the Kennedy Center, right? It did. With under the direction of Eric Schaefer. Correct. And how did you decide to be a part of that? Uh. While I was doing South Pacific, um, I got a call from Eric Schaefer, and he said, I'm doing Follies in a year. Uh, I'd like you to play Buddy. And I said, great. If it happens, yeah, let me know. I'd love to do it with you. He said, uh, Bernadette Peters is already you know, signed on. You'd play opposite her. And I said, I love Bernadette. She's a fantastic person, and that'd be great. And I, that's, that's how it came about. I mean, when did you stop auditioning for things? I still audition for things. Do you? Sure, yeah. But I do get offers for things, too, at the same time. Uh, It's unbelievably humbling to audition, and and it's also kind of a a good thing, you know, so you don't start thinking of yourself as a star. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You in particular, you and Jen Maxwell got, like, Uh incredibly... I mean, everybody did, but you guys got glowing reviews for that production. And I was wondering if that is ever a detriment. And does that ever... Do you ever fear that... Do you read reviews, first of all? I read them all. You do? Yeah, I'm a rarity in the business. Most people don't, but I read everything. Um, In Follies, I was called everything from a revelation to a dog. (laughs) You know, it's... I, I I don't really give a shit what they say ultimately. Um, some are going to be great and some are going to be terrible. Uh, you have to just, you know, I just like to know what's being said. Yeah. I, I, it's, you know, maybe it's because, you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker and I, I want to know. Um, yeah. But uh, I, and it doesn't matter. And you're able to let it sort of, no matter good or bad, you're able to sort of put it away and just do your job? Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. The work is the work. And you go out there and try to make it better every night. I hope that if somebody sees Fiddler early on, they'll like it. But if they come back in a month or two, that they'll think that the show has grown even deeper and and it's more honest than real and that the show is tighter. That's what we strive for. That's what you do in a long run. You try and make it better every single night. Yeah. The last show I wanted to talk... I mean, I could talk to you about everything all night long. Um, I feel like we have to sort of skip Golden Boy because I want to talk about Cabaret, but Golden Boy was just one of the most incredible... That was was, uh, Bart. It was all Bart, Yeah, that show. He knew what he wanted to do from the very beginning, and he went for it, and everybody followed, and that was a beautiful, beautiful production that... uh, that, in my opinion, had no flaws whatsoever. No, I perfect. loved it. I will tell you this. My my friend, Vayu O'Donnell, understudied oh, you. I love Vayu. Yeah, and he would talk about you as, like, just this great leader and you as somebody who had understudied and somebody that he just felt so lucky to be around every night. Yeah. Well, I, I felt the exact same way about him. <laughs> he is a great, great individual. He is a... Great yeah, guy. that guy's top quality. Um, okay, so Cabaret. Can we end with talking about Cabaret? Sure. I read that it was kind of the musical that made you say, okay, I'm going to keep doing musicals a little longer. Because I think maybe at that point in your career, you thought you wanted to yeah. focus more on plays. Yeah. Um, what was it about this particular show that made you know you had to come and do it? I just wanted to... Um, I loved the show. I love... Uh, I, I, I worked with both Kander and Ebb years ago. And I love John Kander. 
and he and um, Todd Hames asked me to do it, and I, I just thought it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. I actually was uh, cast in a, a Broadway play that I had to pull out of. That was <laughs> really, really uh, upsetting because I really wanted to do that play as well. Uh, but this was a, a longer contract. I was uh, I, I was intrigued with working uh, with uh, Sam Mendes mm-hmm. and Robbie Marshall, who is an old friend. We did uh, the first revival of Company together on Broadway. Yes, in 19, I know. We didn't get to talk about in '95, and I loved him so. Uh, it was a lot of old home week kind of stuff and also great, great, great material. There was a cool story where you, on your day off, they flew you to London to go meet. They were like, we don't want you to audition. Sure. We just want you to come hang out for a day in London on your day yeah. off. They didn't tell me. They just said, we want you to meet Sam Mendes. You know, I said, okay, I'm in tech for the snow geese and my, you know, working 14-hour days. My one day off is Monday. So uh, I'd l- I'll meet him then. You know, let me know where. And they, they called me back two days later. Okay, we've got your flight all set up. And I went, uh, flight? <laughs> what do you mean, flight? Said, yes, you're meeting him in London. I'm like, oh, f- God. <laughs> so I, it was a 24-hour trip. And I flew there, had a meeting with him, and he was fantastic. We were only supposed to meet for like 10, 15 minutes or something. Oh, my and God. And we wound up staying for an hour and a half just talking about life. And he's a fantastic guy and so, so bright and such a great, great director. And then I turned around and got my stuff from the hotel where I'd literally put my stuff only a few hours before and, you know, went back to the airport. And came home the same day? Uh, Came home the same day, yeah. And then I had tech the next morning. Oh, my God. So for the snow geese on the Tuesday. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. Danny Burstein, it's like such an honor to meet you oh, and please. to, Same yeah, here. we're so grateful. And uh, our sincerest, but most happiest congratulations to Rebecca thank on you her big much. news for Fun Home today. Yeah, yeah, we're thrilled. Now I'm going to have to go back and see it like a fifth time. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, yeah. you, well, now you will. Now I will. I hope <laughs> we have, uh, you know, a different schedule. Oh, right. I know, we don't, you know, that doesn't always happen. Wouldn't that be so bizarre to not be able to see? That would suck. <laughs> would would suck. you take a day off? I contractually, I'm not allowed to. Really? Yeah. That's what happens when you become a big star, you guys. You can't, you can't just take <laughs> it down. you become out. a regular guy. <laughs> Danny Burstein, we're so grateful for your time. Thank you, That's and congratulations really, on your really great show. It. Thank you. Care, so guy. nice to meet you. Hey, theater people. Just a reminder, there are a handful of tickets left to see Leslie Margarita live for just $10 at our inaugural summer series show on May 8th at Pearl Studios. Get your tickets at our website www.theaterpeople.com That's theater with an E-R P-P-L.com and click on the Summer Series link. Also, if you have a minute, review us on iTunes. It really means a lot to us and it helps other theater people find our show. Theater People is produced by Mike Jensen and me, Patrick Hines. Mike edited this episode. Special thanks as always to Bradley Bean, Steve Tipton, Ellen Marsh, and the staff at Oswald's. We'll be back next Monday with Bright Star's Paul Nolan. In the first two minutes of that episode, you will hear how utterly shocked I was to discover that that guy really, truly is that handsome in real life. Like, he just walks around all day with that face like it's nothing. Anyway, until then, tell your friends about us. Let's get the theater community talking. Let's get the theater community talking.